Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. The independent investigation has concluded that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women and in doing so violated federal and state law. Specifically, the investigation found that Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed current and former New York State employees by engaging in unwelcome and non-consensual touching and making numerous offensive comments of a suggestive and sexual nature that created a hostile work environment for women. Gibbs, how are you, my man? You feeling all right? Uh, never been better, Axe, uh, largely because off in the distance, I see that familiar hat. Yeah. You know what? This guy is hat and cattle. Mark <laughs> McKinnon. Which, if you spent time in Texas, you have to be, right? Yeah, although exactly. he's probably in Colorado, right? That's right. Colorado. Private first class hackeroo reporting for duty. Excellent. Good to see you. Well, just in time, because we have breaking news that was reflected in the clip at the top of the show, which is that the long-awaited report on Governor Andrew Cuomo and his uh, uh, and charges of sexual harassment is out, and it is blistering. I don't think this ends well for Governor Cuomo. I don't think he'll be governor of the state of New York that long. This long-anticipated report about the uh, behavior of uh, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo a long ago former client of mine, I should add, for editorial integrity. Oh, well, that makes this even more interesting that we can get your insights <laughs> in. So you guys carry the conversation. <laughs> the headline is uh, Cuomo sexually harassed current and former state employees, creating a hostile work environment for women in violation of state and federal law, according to the Attorney General Letitia James. So what does it mean for Cuomo, who's up for re-election next year? Well, here's my question, David, especially since you work for him. I, I, the, the thing that surprises me about all of this is that it seems to have been a pattern of behavior for a long time and a lot of it. How did he how did he escape this for so long? I did not see that particular behavior. I mean, you know, he can be tough on people around him. There's no doubt about it. I didn't see that particular behavior then. And I don't know if his behavior changed. You're right. It was over a long period of time. When I worked for him, he was running for attorney general in the state. But also times have changed, and so people are more willing to come forward. It takes a lot to come forward. The interesting thing is this report, Gibbs, was something that Cuomo asked for. Right. And he asked for it because he was under siege, right. and it bought him some time. The question is, now that it's here, is, to borrow a phrase, is time up? It is, and I'll tell you, your question about how does it affect his reelection is moot. There, there won't be a reelection. You think he won't even run, Gibbs? I think he'll be impeached rather quickly. Wow. Uh, I don't I don't think they're going to give him the option of serving uh, any longer as, as governor of the Empire State. I, I, I think he may try to hold on as politicians tend to pass when they need to go. Uh, but I think I, I just given the very brief comments that I saw the attorney general make, the idea that the report includes documentation of him violating state and federal Law, sexual yeah. harassment laws, I, I don't see, he may think he can still govern New York. I, I'm fairly sure the Senate and the House will unburden him of those thoughts. If he's accused of violating those laws, will he be prosecuted? Certainly could be, yeah. I mean, that's obviously a question. 
but that's a standard that the state legislature doesn't have to meet if they want to impeach him. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about him is, uh, you know, he is the most uh, resilient and pugnacious politician that I've ever seen. You know, there was some really graphic public testimony at the time this whole story broke, particularly from a young former executive assistant of his that was pretty shocking. And, you know, his basic thing was, I'm going to fight. I'm going to bull my way through this thing. Yeah. And up until today, David, I was really surprised at how he really did kind of bounce through it. He was defiant in a taped statement that he released, and it's clear that he intends to fight this out. Here's a bit of that statement. I want you to know directly from me that I never touched anyone inappropriately or made inappropriate sexual advances. I am 63 years old. I have lived my entire adult life in public view. That is just not who I am. And that's not who I have ever been. I don't know, Robert. I, I think the legislature may be forced to take action by uh, the nature of these charges. But, you know, they're going to read this report on it with one hand and the polling numbers with the other. And he will use the levers he has. But I think the odds are, you're right, that the jig may be up. If he does run, if he were to run under this incredible cloud, if he is not impeached and he were to run, he most certainly will have a primary. You know, I had, uh, you, I had an old friend of yours, uh, Mark, on, the, uh, on my Axe Files podcast a few weeks ago, Cecile Richards. And, you know, Cecile now has lived, she's lived in New York for a couple of decades, I guess. And I said, I asked her about her own political future. And she said, and I said, well, I guess, you know, you may be too Texas for New York and too New York for Texas. And she <laughs> said, well, uh, I don't know about the first part. She said, I think my mom would have done really well in New York. Mm -hmm. And I yes, said, well, <laughs> so that being, being, you know, um, the political genius I, I am, I thought, huh, maybe she's trying to tell us something. And I said, well, are you thinking of maybe would you challenge the, she said, well, I think he will be challenged and I'm not making any announcements here. And wow. Yeah. Well, that's my next question is, is who, who on the landscape will, will rise here then? Do you think? Well, it could well be the attorney general. You could see he knew yeah. what was coming because he's been making a lot of noise in the last few days about the prosecutor she hired to do the report who had prosecuted his top aide and had uh, investigated Cuomo in the past and about the attorney general and, you know, the, the, the notion that she was using this as a springboard to her own candidacy. So, you know, her name will come up. And what about de Blasio? Yes, I actually think he could run for governor. I think he could run for governor, and particularly if, uh, if, uh, if Cuomo, you know, it, interestingly, he once worked for Cuomo. They once were close. They hate each other. They hate each other. And, you know, whatever de Blasio's numbers are right now, I, I think he would be very tempted to run. I mean, he the options aren't all that wide for him. Now, you know, look, when, when this whole story broke, Chuck Schumer... Both senators in New York called for Cuomo to resign. I have to believe the drumbeat starts up again today. It's going to be rocky waters here. I think when you have a race that's as probably going to be as wide open as this, you're going to have a, a large cast of candidates because 
you know, it's a it's a huge high profile job and they don't come to some degree open all that often. Yeah, the lieutenant governor, Kathy Kochel, is she could well be governor if the legislature does what you said, Gibbs. Uh, she will be governor and, and presumably a candidate for governor. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll see if others jump into that race as well. I want to pick up on a point, though, that one of one or both of you might have made the pugnaciousness of 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 Cuomo. And we've seen this and I don't want to bring everything in the world back to Trump, but you can look back to, to 2015 and 2016. There's a hundred occasions in which a normal candidate five years before that would have dropped out of the race. And any number of times during his time in the White House, the the reelection or, or whatever, you know, obviously the very infamous tape at the at the end of the, the 2016 race. But I do think you've seen whether, you know, uh, Governor Northam in uh, in Virginia after um, after the blackface uh, from mm-hmm. his his college yearbook or, or Cuomo now. I mean, politicians now dig in and figure out they can they can potentially survive by not going anywhere in a world in which I think five years ago or 10 years ago, I mean, Elliot Spitzer didn't fight it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, others have uh, others, not even in New York, something comes up and, and, and they're out of there. And, and I just think that there's something about, no, I think that's a great that. point. I, I think that the playbook has changed and Ralph yeah. Northam's a really good example of that. Yeah. yeah. Now the difference was that Northam had 30 years of record yeah. that he could point to and the black community stood by him. Right. In that particular instance. So it gave him the ability to survive. He also had his lieutenant governor had issues. All the people in the succession trail had right. issues. But your point, but Gibbs, you, you, you're making two points. Yes, I think Andrew Cuomo, he is not going to be shamed out of the governor's office. And if he right. has a chance to survive, he will fight to survive. But this comes after you already said you thought that they would throw him out. Oh, I definitely think they're going to throw him out. I'm not suggesting that. I, I, it is two separate points. Do I think Andrew Cuomo is going to fight until the very end? Do I think he'll be clawing the, you know, the door while they turn the lights out on him? Absolutely. I think he's 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 not he's not going to go easily. And again, I think that's that Trump playbook. Um, you know, to your to the Northern point. I mean, in the past, people wouldn't have gotten to the point where the black community could have supported them. They would have just left before anybody asked whether they supported them. But I do think I, I, I don't think, given the gravity, the depth of this report, I, I don't think that he, I, I don't think he can survive, regardless of his degree in fighting. I just, when the attorney general says you violated state and federal law. I think it's really hard to be governor when you're, you're dealing with the criminal justice system is, is potentially as a defendant. The other thing is he's got other investigations going on, some related to his handling of the, uh, the COVID virus. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, he's got what my grandfather would call surus in Yiddish. Lots of trouble. Lots of, <laughs> lots of trouble here. So and not we'll good see. trouble. Not good trouble. No, <laughs> this is not good trouble. Let's take a short break and hear from our sponsors. You know, Robert, among the things I most don't like to do or didn't like to do, shopping for a car or home insurance, it's complicated. You could spend days looking up hundreds of providers. I've done that, uh, scrolling through thousands of policy options, and then you're besieged by customer representatives. You waste a whole bunch of time. You're getting through the quote just to find out that there's extra charges. It's just not what I want to do. And now there is an answer. And it's called the zebra. 
The Zebra is the nation's leading insurance comparison site for car and home insurance. In other words, they do the shopping acts for you. In just five minutes, you can compare quotes from every major insurance provider side by side for free, all from one independent marketplace. The Zebra pairs people with the insurance company that's right for them, delivering quotes with the coverage they need and saving them an average of $922 on home and car insurance combined. So you can buy online or over the phone with one of their licensed insurance agents. And the the Zebra is totally independent with no stake in the policy you choose. So you know they're giving you the straight scoop. So shop car insurance without shopping around. Get all of your options in one place for free by visiting thezebra.com slash hacks. That's thezebra.com slash hacks. Speaking of COVID, the ground has shifted in the last month in a big way. You know, it was just a month ago that the president had a, a big event on the lawn of the White House, Harold, and he was he had disclaimers in there about the fact that the fight wasn't over, but the clear message was we've crossed a big hurdle here and we are in a better place, but we've definitely we're backsliding now, largely because the unvaccinated how much of this McKinnon washes up on him? I mean, how do you how do you figure voters process this? Because he ran on the I'm going to lead us through this uh, message. Listen, it's job one and it's muddled right now and it's problematic. Uh, no question about it. I mean, the summer or the roaring 20s now have sort of become the groaning 20s. And everybody's just I, 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 people are confused They're You know, there's, there's just not clear communication coming out of CDC. Uh, and I think people are just kind of angry about it. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's problematic politically, I think for Biden, because this was kind of his one asset, you know, I mean, he may get this infrastructure built through and that'll be good, but, but people elected him to, to, to handle COVID and put it behind us, put it in the rearview mirror. And now suddenly it's on our windshield again. And I have two quick stories, uh, just how it's relevant to me. First of all, my brother-in-law, who was called us weak for getting vaccinations, just got out of the hospital after being there for three weeks, and and you know, with really serious case that, that almost went south. And the other thing is, I was going to Maine this Thursday to see friends of mine. There were like three couples and four, including us, and my wife, who had just survived cancer, and a brother coming out of the hospital with COVID, said, you know, an email. You know, is everybody back? Turns out there's a couple that wasn't. And they're like, so we're, so we're canceling. We're not going. Well, what's your brother saying now? Yeah. Brother-in-law. Well, I, I think that uh, certainly it's got a different tune on vaccinations for sure. You know, that's uh, one of the interesting things is that it turns out that fear does have an accelerating effect. And other loved ones in his family like, ran to get vaxxed. You know, so it took, it took that, but. If you know any good ad makers, you ought to put him in front of a camera for 30 seconds and um, put something up on the Internet. Yeah. You know, I, I, I haven't had a chance to really uh, talk to him in person yet, but I, I'm really interested to kind of talk talk to him about his experience. We're yeah. seeing a lot of those messages. In we there. sure are. Yeah. It's devastating stuff. Well, pretty moving. Well, it scared the shit out of our family, I'll tell you that. Just, I, I mean, bet. It, it rippled through and just scared the hell out of everybody. The, yeah. the one thing I think, it, if there is a silver lining in this, and um, um, is that I saw this today, vaccination rates versus two weeks ago are up in 48 of 50 states. 
20 states are seeing what this called panic vaccination, which means vaccination rates are up by more than 30%. And they're led by places like Louisiana and Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Arkansas, Florida, Texas, and Midwestern states that have, which had been, you know, somewhat um, either vax hesitant or vax resistant in, in a way that I think really was being a cause of problems. So if there has been any good news, it's, it's Mark, it's probably people like your brother-in-law um, and stories like that, that have spurred people. It was a, a, yep. a passionate Alabama no. doctor that went viral no. on, on Facebook saying, you know, right before, you know, recounting right before um, she was intubating patients, um, the last thing they would say to her before they intubated her was, okay, I'm ready for the vaccine now. Yeah. Yeah. She would have to say, yeah. It's too late for that. And, you know, look, I, I don't mean to make, I, 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 I hope, and the reason I said that, Mark, about the ads, I, I think people have to hear the stories in the voices of those who were hesitant or resistant. We, we've sort of passed, I think, the point in which the people that are going to get vaccinated because of somebody in a position of authority tells them that. The people that are now not vaccinated are resistant to that authority voice. It has to come from the tribe. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't trust the authorities. Right. right. And right. that's been exactly. the that that's been the administration's strategy. They've been trying to micro target messaging from family, friends, neighbors, the right. local doctor, the local minister, and right. now local folks who hadn't been vaccinated and, you know, along the lines of what Gibbs is talking about. Robert you know, I, last week I kind of went off on the CDC on messaging, and McKinnon mentions it here. Terrible. I, I have sympathy for Biden. This is not an easy task if people are unwilling to get vaccinated. We know what the answer is, if, you know. But having said that, it hadn't exactly been a triumph of of, of messaging here. I mean, th- there's no, no foaming of the runway. There's no sort of we're here now, but this is what yeah. could happen. There was none of that. So it seemed like we were just, we went from one extreme to another very, very quickly. And that's a, that's a failure of messaging. It is a failure of messaging. The whiplash provides mixed signals for people. They don't know where to get clear information. They don't know how to get clear answers to simple questions. I think the CDC made a huge mistake in changing the guidance. And then only two days later talking about why they changed the guidance. I mean, I remember you know, Obama telling us as president very early, people may not agree with what I do, but if at least I tell them why, they'll understand the reasoning. They may not buy the reasoning, but at least you, so, and look, I've, I've thought all along on this, really since the beginning when this was was impacting us more than a year and a half ago, America, and, and this isn't directed at Biden, this is directed at the entire public health messaging apparatus. We needed Winston Churchill. We yeah. needed somebody who yeah. wasn't afraid right. to tell us it wasn't good right now, but if we banded together and thought of ourselves differently and, and acted differently, that we'd come out on the other side stronger. And I, I think, you know, I think the politics of this have become so fractured that even the best leaders and the best messengers among us are hesitant to sail directly into the wind. And I think that's, but I think the CDC has done a, a, a remarkably terrible job recently doing this. But I read this great, there's a great piece in the New York Times today on it, professor or doctor from, from Emory who talks about, you know, 
this is both political science and behavioral science. And it really right. is. And, and I think that's a, it, it's a great way of thinking about it. And, you know, it's challenging and it's hard to do in the moment. We've had a long time to think about this. And to your point, David, you got to prepare people for the what I ifs. think that's the key. It's not just celebrating the milestones. Those are the easy things to do. And, and look, yes, you have to be the person at the party who says, look, it's good now, but we just we have to remain vigilant because things could change. And, and, right. and you know, look, to, to the, in fairness to both the CDC and Biden, it's also part that's part of the message that people don't tend to hear and the media doesn't tend to cover. Right. Nobody writes a long story about we're shedding our masks. And then like in the third paragraph, somebody says, oh, but this may not last. That doesn't tend to get into it. But that was partly because the tone. Too celebratory. The yeah. unmasking thing came like a lightning bolt. It's like, whoa, we can take our masks off now. There was yeah. no, we're going to take this step, but it's a provisional step. And if we don't hit our targets uh, or if we get on, another strain yeah. here, we may be back in masks. And everybody needs to know that. Uh, there was none. There was no sort of, uh, as I said, foaming of the runway uh yeah. Like that. By the way, you're absolutely right about Churchill. Great books, The Splendid and the Vile. It's a brilliant book. Written over the summer, and you get a real sense of how Churchill led Britain through their darkest hour. And he was very candid yeah. about, and when there were screw ups, he was candid about that. Uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, but his, uh, you know, his willingness to be direct with people about the nature of the challenge as he was still, and, and, and the encouragement as well. Uh, was really important. Mark, uh, how about your uh, your future uh, GOP presidential standard bearer, Governor DeSantis in, in, <laughs> in Florida? Uh, you know, a lot of these Republican governors are at least kind of turning the corner on vaccines, uh, you, you know, late, but they're, they're, they're doing it. But he's planted a flag in the ground on masking of, uh, in schools. And uh, has said, we are not going to allow school districts to require masks on children. Children are the ones who are getting sick now. Young people are the ones who are getting sick. Uh, tell me, explain the, uh, the politics of the Republican Party that make this a winning fight for him. As you know, Florida is now the hotspot. Uh, right. 20% of all the new cases, Florida. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I think that DeSantis has just bet you know, put all his chips on the table on being uh, and doubling down on not shutting down, not, you know, just basically saying, you know, the Democrats, uh, you know, want to shut down the economy, which they don't, of course. But, um, you know, so his he's betting his whole future on, you know, a really dangerous proposition, which is that this thing is not nearly as bad as everybody think it is. And the Democrats are just doomsayers. And we're going to just run nakedly out into the into this festering virus and to hell with it. And and it's a it's a hell of a it's a hell of a bet. And it's a hell of a gamble. And he's gambling lives. Yeah, it's conspicuous. The th but the, the problem is for both both for for DeSantis and Abbott in Texas is that they they both a year ago or so kind of ran, you know, were, were sort of in fist fights with Cuomo and, you know, others about and Fauci, of course, about all the mandates and what have you. And to some degree, they bet right in that short term bet. Right. Because things kind of opened up. Things got better. And they're like, see, it worked. You know, yeah, they did a lot of breastfeeding yeah. and yeah, victory yeah. laps, premature and victory that, laps. And, and now it's Texas and Florida, I think, account for their number one and two. Let us not, David, absolve 
the the left on this, and I'm going to throw them a little under the bus here, because uh, the New York State Teachers Union put out a press release yesterday saying they're not going to require teachers to get vaccinated. This, the teachers union, Jesus. Now, anybody that's getting ready, I'm getting ready to send to send a child to college, right? People are getting ready to send their kids back to school. You got to get a certain amount of vaccines, measles, bumps, and rubella, MMR. You got to get all that. I got to tell you, parents want to see their kids back in school. The best way to protect kids, particularly that right now are under 12 and can't get vaccinated, is for the people that they come into contact with to be vaccinated. There's absolutely, I want to see some leadership from elected officials and teachers union leaders to get teachers vaccinated. Get, teach, and I'm going to say this, mandate, require. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's stop playing around with this. Let's make sure this happens. Let's get kids back into those classrooms protected to the best of our ability. If they have to wear masks, so be it. But let me tell you what, don't ask a 10 year old to wear a mask listening to a teacher who decided not to get vaccinated. Exactly. No, you're right. And listen, this has been a problem from the beginning. I mean, there was lack of clarity on school policy uh, last fall because of concerns on the part of the president and others about how teachers unions would react. I love teachers. I think they are teachers the most are valuable great. people in our society. But teachers unions played a, a, a negative role uh, at several junctures in this uh in this process. And and you're right, Robert, every one of them should be vaccinated for their own protection and the protection of, of these children. So yeah, you're, it's, it's inexcusable. Just, just a, you know, not a profile on courage at all. But since we are the hacks, I mean, it is also a reflection of the power of the teachers unions, uh, particularly within the democratic party that this has created you know, some turmoil along the way here. So, you know, unfortunately, this hasn't created enough turmoil. We've got too many leaders uh, who aren't pressing those people to get you. If, 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 if you think Republicans who are hesitant or resistant should get vaccinated, but don't think the members of your union should too, then walk into the bathroom, turn on the light and look in the mirror. Okay. Then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Robert, in in life, you find yourself dealing with things that interfere with your happiness or prevent you from achieving your goals. I know I have, from time to time, sadness or loss in the family, stress at the office, all kinds of things that can knock you off kilter. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And what's great, Axe, is you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online with a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in your area. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. Absolutely. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life 
today. So visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com slash hacks. That's Better H-E-L-P. And join the over million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. So for you Hacks on Tap listeners, take advantage of this special offer and get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash hacks. You mentioned the infrastructure deal, McKinnon. I, I It feels very much like that's going to happen. Murphy's been uh, on this uh, for a while. He he felt it would go through, although the last time he and I were together, he was a little, he was getting a little squishy, uh, and I said I thought it would go through. What is the political impact of, I mean, there's a, there's a societal impact, there's a policy impact. What's the political impact of a bipartisan deal that Biden has pursued so zealously? Yeah, well, I mean, it just puts a big W on the board um, when everybody feels like Washington is in total gridlock. So it's, it's it being a, an opportunity for Biden to say, see, we can work together. We can get things done. Which was part of his message when he ran. Big part. It's part of his message. And, you know, this is something that uh, you know, Congress has been trying to put through for how long, guys? I mean, yeah, well, I, forever, we were there right? for a while. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. every year, and I think Congress Trump's rejected. biggest mistake, I think Trump's biggest mistake is that he didn't make this his first bill. Right. He was so intent on undoing the Affordable Care Act. Right. Right. But think how how, you know, he was a, if he, he could have done an infrastructure bill first. And as a Republican president calling for more spending, he could have gotten Republicans on board and all the Democrats would have been there, you know, uh, Right. Regardless. So and now now the reporting is that he's bitter that Republicans are going to give and he's trying to oh, undo the thing, give uh, Biden the victory. And, you know, that that if this were his bill, he, he would, you know, he you know, he loves everything in this bill. It's absurd that he really thinks that people should vote against it because he would have he would have signed this in a heartbeat. But, you know, you think about this, uh, about the politics of this for those Republican senators. You know, think about how many constituencies in their home states are saying, we want this bill. Right. I mean, it's the roads people, the bridge people. I mean, there's just that's a huge political constituency. Yeah. So a lot of ribbons to cut. Yeah, exactly. Right. A lot of ribbons to cut. Gibbs, what's been interesting to me has been the very uh, complex uh, staging, sequencing of all this. Pelosi sent her members home. Schumer said, I'm going to keep you guys here until you pass both this and the uh, reconciliation, reconciliation deal, the, the partisan, uh, you know, Democrats only larger spending bill that has a lot of Democratic priorities that aren't going to be contained in this bill. The left has demanded that that Senate pass both before the House votes on this. And I think that Pelosi wanted her people out of town. Oh, yeah. Uh, so as to give Schumer time and space to pass those bills so that she could go back to her folks and say, we got them both. Now, now we need to take these votes. Yeah. And look, um, as we've said many times on this podcast, David, you and I watched Speaker Pelosi uh, up close and, and work her her magic um, uh, on this. I, I I have a lot of faith that she can get uh this done and through the house, I, I think to me, it's an interesting juxtaposition. You know, a lot of times 
This happened with healthcare. This has happened with other big pieces of legislation. You know, the House does a lot of, they pass the first bill. They take a lot of tough votes. Send it over to the Senate. The Senate does does the work, but doesn't do it. They, they, they water it down a little bit. And then they basically tell the House, like, look, if you want to get this done, don't change what we did. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of uh, the shoes on the other foot in this case, right? The house is basically saying, we're, we're, you do your first work, we'll send you back something. So I think that's uh, an interesting, fascinating thing, sort of intra Capitol Hill squabble to watch. But I do think that there's a lot more, a lot deeper, I think, in terms of the factions over in the house and, and quite frankly, a lot more moving parts that I don't think Pelosi I think Pelosi knew rightly uh, she couldn't start this process until the Senate did it. I think it's a smart move by Pelosi. And look, I think you're seeing a lot from the left criticize what's in the bipartisan bill, what may or may not be ultimately in a reconciliation bill. I think the twofold, two points here. One, I think it, 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 it's smart negotiating tactics. They're not negotiating. Yeah, no, that's what this is. Right. They're laying down markers so that when they have to give, which they'll eventually have to do, that give comes from a farther uh, point uh, than it normally would. Secondly, I think the the larger overriding thing you'll hear Schumer will be telling this to his Senate caucus and, and, and Speaker Pelosi will be telling this to the House caucus, uh, House Democratic caucus, which is failure is not an option. You can't go into 2022 having made the the perfect the enemy of the good and try to convince voters in the Democratic Party to be excited about coming out in a traditionally mid in a midterm election where traditional turnout is down if we can't show yeah. voters that governing while hard can't be accomplished. That's that's Biden's message, and I, and I think he's right. The left's response, and I think you're right, Robert. I think they're I think they're watching and they're saying, you know, Joe Joe freaking Mansion isn't the only guy who has leverage here. We've got leverage too, yep. and we're going to try and use that leverage. And they're right. Yeah, they, absolutely. I think this is part of the uh, part of the the process. But you know, their argument back is if you don't include our priorities in this legislation, then you know part of the base is going to be dispirited. They're not going to yep. come out. I think this is absolutely uh, critical. I, I mean, I think Democrats are going to be fighting uphill battles in 2022, right. uh, just given the structural nature. I mean, you'd have to bet on the Republicans to take the House right now. Yeah. The 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 way the Democrats need. I mean, they've they're committed to a strategy of producing. And saying, here's what we've delivered. If they don't deliver, they don't have anything going in 2022. Now imagine uh, the Dems going into the midterms without an infrastructure bill. So the only thing they passed was COVID, and COVID is muddled and screwed up. Right. That's not a yeah. That's not a winning message. And I will say this: we, we should be fair to. I do think, I do think a lot of the House Dems they come at this seriously, right? I mean, they, they want to make sure. They, they see this as a once in a generation and maybe a, a once in a, you know, we, we talk, we've talked a lot about pandemics in the last year and a half. They see this as a once, a once in a lifetime opportunity to do something big on climate change. And, you know, God knows if, if, um, you know, I, I spent time out in Montana, uh, you, you know, the, the, the heat is unbelievable. It's not normal right now. And the, you, you can't go. We have fires think, and floods in Colorado right, right now. Exactly. Both at the same time. You can head in any direction and find evidence of totally of a disaster, slow rolling disaster on this. And that's the complaint of the left about the infrastructure bill that 
some of the it has some environmental measures uh charging stations for electric cars and and some other things it doesn't have uh some of the major pieces that they wanted they're apparently going to be in the uh, or they're going to fight to get it into the reconciliation bill but there's another thing that's percolating up there uh, right now that has the left uh, angry and that's the this eviction issue the, there was a 9 month moratorium on evictions uh rental evictions uh that the CDC imposed. Supreme Court said last month that was okay, but if you want to continue it, you need congressional approval to do it. And the House went home. They couldn't get the votes to do it. Probably can't get 60 votes in the Senate uh, to do it. And the left has been unusually pissed at Biden, the the implication being that he should just or do this by executive order and challenge the courts to... Uh, and he doesn't want to do that. Uh, so, what is there? Is there long-term political fallout from that fight, or will this be just a minor churning of the waters here? The question I think that answers that, or the answer to that, I should say, I want is, the answer. That's why I asked you. <laughs> the answer to that, I think, is whether or not this is the beginning of a greater amount of chafing and friction between those two entities. Or right. not. I mean, you know, I will say that the White House and, and, and the progressive left have been extraordinarily in sync, save a couple of issues uh, uh, over the course of the last, you know, eight, six, eight, nine months. And I, I think, you know, and I think the, the Biden administration has been smart to keep everybody together as much as possible. They've done and, and a really good job. This has been a focus of Clains, uh, Ron Clains, and and they've they've done a good job. The one time there was a big snafu, you know, on the refugee cap, you know, it took the White House like thirty minutes to change weeks and weeks of weeks worth of work because they realized this was untenable. So it'll be interesting to see whether this is the beginning. I don't think this is a political liability for Biden. I mean, it'd be a very mixed message for him to say the economy's back. We're doing great. And oh, by the way, we still have to you know, ma- maintain a mort- moratorium on evictions. I mean, at some point, you got to say we're back and yeah. it, it should be business as usual. I also wonder, you know, I remember um, looking at research on things like, you know, things that are signature issues of, of the left, a free college for example. And I was surprised at the resistance among some uh, to it um, because there was a sense that, hey, I, I, I pay my, you know, I paid my tuition, I pay my bills. I wonder if there's any of that on this eviction issue. I mean, there's real fear and, and, and suffering out there, I have no doubt, and, and you know, uh, should be addressed. There's a whole, there are billions and billions of dollars that are stashed away to, that are supposed to be there to help yeah, people pay their rent. Dollars. And all yeah. of it is just sitting there. So that's the answer the administration is is pushing on. But I do think uh, I, I'm interested. I think this may be a more complex, just as a clinical political issue, more complex uh, than uh, than perhaps some uh, uh, some believe. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break, and now a word from our sponsors. Gibbs. You and I both know that there were times in our lives together as colleagues when we were maybe not as assiduous as we should have been about what we eat. But you're looking good, my man. You're looking great now. <laughs> I, I don't recall these uh, these days of 
of stuffing food as quickly into our, into our <laughs> mouth and walking onto a campaign plane and grabbing Snickers <laughs> exactly. bars that were sitting there. Uh, There's a better way out there now, though. There is a better way. And it makes leading a healthier lifestyle easier. With some satisfying home-cooked dinners, everything's hand-packed, it's organic. You got to be talking about Green Chef. They offset their direct carbon emissions. They reduce their plastic packaging in every box. If it's going to be this easy, Axe, you and I and all of our listeners have no more excuses. I'm always conscious of the fact that given the choice, I will make the wrong one. And now there's a choice of meals that make sense, that are good for you, good for the environment. Green Chef offerings, they fit perfectly with your diet and your lifestyle. And that is great. Yeah. And, you know, for people like me and that love to cook, it's perfect. Uh, it comes to your house. A lot of it's pre-measured. A lot of it's mostly prepped. It's easy. It fits with what you want to do. And we hope you'll give it a try. So go to greenchef.com slash hacks100 and use the code hacks100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash hacks100 and use code hacks100 to get $100 off, $100, including free shipping. It's easy to start using the number one meal kit for eating well. Bon appetit. There is sort of a proxy battle going on in Ohio today. Uh, I mean, we'll know the verdict on both probably, fronts. On both uh, fronts, the yeah. Dems and on two and fronts, Republican and Democrat. Actually, yeah, yeah. The one in Cleveland has gotten more attention between Nina Turner, who's was Bernie Sanders' national chair and and is very much a a person of the left, and Chantel Brown, who is a local official in uh, Cuyahoga County and a local party official. Uh, Jim Clyburn and the Congressional Black Caucus have rallied around Brown. Um, Sanders and AOC have been in for Turner. Turner had a huge lead. That lead has dissipated. The people on the ground, I mean, who knows what's going to, it's a very close race. There is this sense that the momentum is with Brown uh, on this. Uh, And, you know, I don't know how much of it is local in nature and how much of it is the fact that it's been nationalized and there's this this uh, bow. But uh, there are going to be a lot of tea leave reading about this race one mm-hmm. way or the other, Gibbs. Yeah. And, and look, I'm always hesitant to take some of these races and say there's this huge national trend. I do think this one is interesting, you know, for what's the direction of um, what role does lo- do local issues play, the candidates play. And, and you know, th- th- it does pit somebody who's who's sort of much, much, much further out on the left versus somebody who says, like, look, we used to go there and help Joe Biden get stuff done. Um, you know, interesting thing that was whipping around a little bit last night was a, an interview with Nina Turner, um, unwilling to say who she voted for for president in 2016, um, which uh, that that seems uh, mildly problematic, to put it uh, lightly. Um, you know, so I, I think it'll be interesting to watch how this comes, how this, how this comes to play. I mean, I think there's lots of different dynamics, uh, in this district and, and it'll be, and lots of different political dynamics on Capitol Hill around the Congressional Black Caucus. But it's been really interesting the way, um, the way they've framed the Brown people and Clyburn have framed this race. You know, Biden swamped Bernie Sanders among African-American voters. He's very popular 
among right. African-American voters. And basically, they've posited this race as someone who will be for Biden and cooperate with Biden and help Biden versus someone who has been critical of Biden, said she didn't see any difference between Biden and, and Trump or, or much of a difference between Biden and Trump. And that's just been uh, a killer for her. Uh, and that's what's made this uh, close race. Right. You also have Shaker Heights in there uh, where there are a lot of Jewish voters. Turner's been very tough on Israel. Uh, those voters are likely yeah. to break big for, for Brown. When but, you do an interview and you, you're, you're a pretty big Democrat and somebody says, who'd you vote for in 2016? And your answer is voting is private. Yeah. Well, actually, voting is private, which is why I would have said I voted for Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is, is there a HIPAA voting uh yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It must be. It'd be interesting to see. Deeply problematic. And and uh, McKinnon uh, over there in the Columbus area, there's another race. Yeah. Talk about that one. Well, there's a Republican race, and um, there was a bit of an earthquake in Texas a couple of weeks ago when there was a a, a, a special election last week. It was last week. Last yeah. week for yeah. a member who died of COVID, actually, right. uh, and his wife was running, and and Trump endorsed her. Uh, but a bunch of Republicans, including especially former Governor Rick Perry and Congressman Dan Crenshaw, endorsed another candidate, um, and the Trump candidate lost. Yeah, and and you know so much of Trump's capital. I mean, Republicans generally don't like him, and it's not an ideological thing. It's all about power and punishment uh, and raw political power, right? And I mean, people people are loyal to him because they fear him. And, right. and the, 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 you know, the reason the tip of that spear is so sharp is because he has been successful at taking people out in primaries and that, that endorsement has meant a lot. So the fact that, 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 uh, his candidate lost was, you know, uh, perhaps a signal of, of, of things changing in the landscape. And it was really funny to listen to Trump try and spin that as anything but a loss. He goes, Oh no, it's not a loss. It's a win. Uh, but, uh, so, so, but anyway, we have if if he should lose his endorsed candidate race today in Ohio, then I, I think there is some trouble in River City. And this is Mur Murphy and I talk a lot about the man who would be king. You know, it's, it's that great thing where you know as soon as as soon as he was scratched and, and he bled, it's like it was over. Right. And so as, as soon as as Trump is seen as vulnerable, it, you know his his power can dissipate overnight. It would be remarkable if his candidate lost because he won that district by 14 points. I mean, the one in Texas was actually a suburban district that he won by three. So this is more of a Trump stronghold. So if he were to lose this one, it would really get tongues uh, wagging. Yeah, and there's 10 candidates in the field, so it's it's probable that his candidate will win. That yeah, yeah. Speaking of Trump, and then we got to take the mail. There was a good news, bad news story for the Republican Party. Uh, this week. The good news is they've caught up on uh, small donations with Democrats, which was a huge advantage to Democrats in, in, in the past couple of cycles. The bad news is almost all of, a lot of it has been driven by small contributions to Trump. Yeah, they can't quit him. And to he's sitting there with $100 million. And he's telling Republicans, don't give money to the party organizations, give the money to me. And I will yeah. dole it out. So, you know, that, McKinnon, you talk about fear, but that's part of the equation that Trump has a following. Trump has a very, very uh, virulent following. He does. 
that's got to add to the fear factor for Republicans. Well, it does. I mean, he's the guy that can raise money, and and you know, we all know that what what money means in politics, and so that that adds to the fear factor of those who would go against Trump, and it and it also testifies to the longer range problem for the Republican Party, in my view, which is that they just can't quit him, and they need to quit him in order to be successful in the future. Yeah. Well, the question is, how do you quit him and not get his voters to quit you? Exactly. And I think, to, to, you know, to the, the point on Ohio 15 and this other stuff, I mean, he may not have everybody, but he still can take a sizable chunk, of, enough of a sizable chunk away. Now, he's he's had a couple of different opportunities to, you know, start his own political party, so to speak, and seems to keep has backed away from that on each occasion. I think that's probably outside of his organizational realm anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think even even if it's just 40 percent or 35 percent of uh, the Republican electorate, it's it's enough to wreak real havoc in a country that's basically 50 50. Hey, before we get to the mail and, and at the risk of uh, aggravating our producer, Allison Siegel, by taking more time up, I just have to play for you guys this clip of Jim Jordan you know, who uh, Pelosi would not allow on the uh, on the select committee on January 6th. And he was asked on, I think, a friendly interview uh, whether he had oh, spoken yeah. to Trump on <laughs> January great. 6th. L- listen <laughs> to this exchange. There's some confusion over what you told Brett Baer on Fox News on Tuesday night. So I want to clear it up. First off, yes or no, did you speak with President Trump on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I speak. I, I spoke with the president last week. I speak with the president all the time. I spoke with him on January sixth. I mean, I talk with President Trump all the time, and that's that's. I don't think that's unusual. Uh, I would expect members of Congress to talk with the president of the United States when they're trying to get done the things they told the voters in their district to do. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm I'm actually kind of amazed sometimes that people keep asking this. But of course, I talk with the president all the time. I talk with him, like I said, I talked with him last week. On January 6th, did you speak with him before, during, or after the Capitol was attacked? Uh, I'd have to go. I, 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 I spoke with him that day after, I think after. I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I, I just don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back. And, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, that when, when those conversations happened. But, um, but uh, what I know is I spoke with him all the time. But, but Taylor, the, the key here is the people we need to speak to. The people we need to talk to are the ones who can answer the question, why wasn't there a better security presence that day? <laughs> wow. So there you go. Uh, I hope he has better answers if he gets subpoenaed by the select committee to talk about what his role was that day. That is the sound and the voice of not a member of the commission, but a witness being asked questions by the commission. And I love my favorite part of that answer is twice he starts to say and catches himself, I'd have to go back. I, and he and quickly yeah. switches because he's about to say, I'd have to go back and check my records. Let me just assure you, someone is going to go back and check those records, okay? <laughs> Somebody is, you know, it, it will be interesting. But look, I can do a whole diatribe on this, but Kevin McCarthy, um, I think, has mishandled every single bit of the politics around the January 6th commission because he's going to be a witness Jim Jordan's going to be a witness. Yeah, but maybe not just a witness, a participant, perhaps. Uh, right. Well, in, the, I, in, right. In exactly. Happened. They're going to be interrogated and, and they're going to look over on that side of the dais. And there's not going to be one person over there because of what Kevin McCarthy did and how badly he mishandled yeah. 
the Liz Cheney situation in leadership, there's nobody to protect them. There's nobody to ask them questions and lead them down a different path. They are going to, yeah, both of them are going to be sitting it, in that yeah. witness chair, having taken an oath to tell the truth, and no one's going to be protecting them. The oath they've taken is to Trump. Ken McCarthy thinks he needs Trump uh, oh. he, to yeah. be Speaker of the House, and all Ken McCarthy cares about is being Speaker of the House. And so, you know, and, and, and Jordan's completely hitched his wagon to uh to Trump. And so they are where they are. I don't doubt that. It'll be interesting to watch how that oath collides with the one. The one they take when they get sworn in. That exchange reminds me of the uh, great saying, guys, in politics, when you're explaining, you're losing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <It's> totally <laughs> right. Yeah. I hoped you, I was hoping you were going to play the McMaster sound. I got a great Fritz Hollings, Henry McMaster. Oh, shoot. Story well, there. all right. Well, we'll play it. But we're not going to have a mandatory mask uh, mandate. We're not going uh, to allow our schools. We have a law in South Carolina we passed uh, last year that uh, says that the, the schools cannot require masks. It's, this ought to be up to the parents whether the children wear a mask when they go to school. That's a parent decision. Now, we have the information. We know the danger involved. Vaccinations are available all over the state. Testing is available all over the state. It's all free, and we're going to trust the people to do the right thing. We're giving them the right information, but I believe a lot of our national experts are are engaging in frightening hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> So that is the sound of of South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster and and Axa and and my, uh, Mark. I'm I'm reminded of um, one of the first people I worked in politics for, uh, Fritz Hollings. I worked for yeah. him in 1998, but wow. in 1986, Henry McMaster, running against Fritz Hollings, turned to him in a debate and said, "Fritz, you ought to take a drug test and release the results." <laughs> and Hollings didn't miss a beat. And he said, I'll take a drug test if you'll take an IQ test and release the results. <laughs> that was worth it, kids. I could report many years later that no IQ test was taken and no results <laughs> clearly, have been clearly, released. Clearly, yeah. All right, man, hit the mail. All right, so we're going to try something slightly different here with the mailbag. We're going to, um, we're in the interest of time, um, though our timekeepers will probably tell us at the end of this that we took more time. But uh, in the interest of time, we're because all three of us Because you just took gonna, time to do that. I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> that uh, all three of us are going to answer the same two questions. So let me start off. This is Greg's question. We've heard a lot about bipartisanship as a talking point in the last few weeks, months, and years, regardless of how individual lawmakers personally feel about working across the aisle, do you think a majority of American voters actually care about how bipartisan a bill is as much as some Beltway insiders seem to think they do? Look, I think that uh, people uh, want to get things done, and I think that's very, very important. Uh, you know, failing because you were seeking bipartisanship uh, is not satisfying. That said, look at any poll talk to any focus group of, you know, uh, Americans who are not on the polls, and uh, they will tell you, we want people to work together. We don't want them exploiting issues and weaponizing issues in order to score political points in the next election, so much as working together to solve problems. And I do think there's a constituency for bipartisanship uh, out there and, uh, and, an, and an imperative to make the system work. Uh, so, um, 
you know, uh, yeah, I think the answer is yes. I think the, 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 the questioners seem to feel otherwise, but I feel there is a constituency. This has been the classic Biden approach on this on this infrastructure bill. And it, it, if he gets it done and it looks like a pretty good shot that he will now, I think there'll be I think there'll be a political payoff for it because this is precisely the sort of thing Biden ran on and now has executed on. Gibbs. The short term answer is yes. And the long term, the medium to long term answer is no. Oh, you cynic. Explain <laughs> it. I agree with you on the short term. Yes. I mean, I think Biden ran on this. There's there's a huge stake in this. And I think it's good for his messaging. And it's, I think it's probably good for the country. I don't think we should get overly excited that bipartisanship is going to take over in any way, because I think infrastructure is probably the easiest and maybe the only issue. I think in the medium to long term, no, no, n- nobody says to somebody, wow, this is a really nice road we're on. Did you know it passed with 77 right. votes in the Senate? They don't yeah, give a shit. Yeah, that's true. That is true. That you know, As I said, I think the bottom line is getting something done. But the fact of the matter is uh, that they a lot hasn't gotten done. And uh, I think people ultimately see this as the way forward. I think, you know, a partisan-only approach to governing uh, is in a very divided country uh, a, going to produce more often than not no results. And, um, and there are only so many procedural tools you can use to overcome uh, that. So, you know, like I think bipartisanship has value. Allison, let the record reflect. I was trying to give a short no, yes answer. and, and Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, when you fuzz it up, I have to kind of come back. I appreciate that. Let's go to the, the th- this is a fun question. I'm going on a DC trip in a couple of weeks with my family and was hoping to get recommendations for can't miss sites and eats as a tourist that even regulars like yourselves uh, appreciated. Great question, by the way. Great Great question. Yeah, and I think all three of us have spent uh, more time than we've wanted to in that city. Uh, but I will say that one of the it's a great city to visit as a tourist, and including and especially because there's so much to do for free. Yes, and I would put at the top of that list the monuments, which are just spectacular, and just take a walk or a run and just just go around and see. Vietnam, Lincoln, Jefferson, it, they're just spectacular. And if you can do it at night, that's really cool too. And then the museums on the mall, all free. The National Archives, it's just it's spectacular stuff. And throw in one little sizzle thing, which is uh, the Spy Museum, which is really cool. Gibbs? Mark took a, a plethora of my answers, but I want to underscore two that he said walk the monuments at night. They're less crowded, it's a little cooler, and they're just gorgeous. Uh, and the city is gorgeous. The National Archives, the founding documents of our country are yes. there. And I had the, the honor of, of knowing the archivist there uh, and, and and going on a few trips uh, uh, and, and and seeing some of that of, of really up close and personal. So I, I think those uh, are two. And then I had a third and I just forgot it. Well, you kind of stole mine, uh, which is the archives. Uh, you know, I went there as a, as a young kid and I've never lost my reference. I think it has more importance now than ever uh, because we ought to understand the history of uh, the founding and the principles behind uh, this democracy and the challenge that it represented uh, to us as an experiment that was ongoing, not a gift. You know, these are not these are living documents, and they are a challenge to us uh, to uh, keep democracy 
vibrant. And uh, I think that's very relevant to where we are today. So if you do nothing else, go to the National Archives, spend some time there, consider what those documents mean. Well, so we have a good cons- good, cons- good consensus on what to do. How about just each of us throw out a eatery uh, that we'd recommend, and I'll, I'll throw out Ben's Chili Bowl, which is oh, a great okay. historic place uh, that's just got a ton of history and sort of the civil rights movement and uh, and also the best chili dog you'll ever get. Get a reservation to Georgia Browns and get the shrimp yeah. and grits and tell oh, them boy, to keep yeah. the heads on. Yeah. <laughs> I want to throw a bouquet to my friend, uh, Jose Andres. Uh, oh, yeah. So any of his restaurants in D.C. are worth, uh, Haleo, or any of his restaurants in D.C. are worth, the food is great, and he's a great guy doing great work. So I'll throw that out there. Great Indian place named Rasika right near those two as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Also, we have Ebbett Grill right across from the White House. It's an old And the standard. Treasury, yes. If you can get a capital tour... And I used to, the reason I love these Capitol tours is this is the first thing I did as a congressional intern was give tours of the Capitol and you can walk around, uh, and, or you could then, I don't know if you can now check ahead, uh, talk to your Senator representative about getting you a tour. But, uh, you know, members of Congress just walking around, you know, going to meetings and going to hearings and voting and, uh, stand in the rotunda and look up and, uh. It's a just it's a wonderful, wonderful building and really a hallmark of our democracy. McKinnon, always great to see you, brother. Kick it hard and carry on regardless, brothers. We'll see you soon, Gibbs. Thanks. Talk soon, guys. 